Father, yet again we do ask for your mercy. We've heard you speak in the reading of the Scriptures. We ask now that you would speak in the preaching of the Scriptures. O Lord, show mercy to our weakness. Certainly, Exodus 26 is larger than we are. Give us help for Christ's sake. Amen. I've decided to do something a little different today. I'm not actually going to preach a sermon. I'm just going to teach you how to plan for your retirement. I'm going to walk you through all the different ways to invest. Already I've lost some of you, right? There's, there's two responses to that already. Response number one is, I have no desire to listen and I'm out. That would comprise probably 98% of the room. The two others of you were excited, but you're already set for your retirement, so you don't need to worry about it. All joking aside, um, this year at General Assembly, I was on the committee that dealt with that. And that was one of the things they said. We have struggles is trying to figure out how to get people excited about talking about details that are unbearably dry and difficult. I came back to mind this week reading Exodus 26. How do we get excited about a chapter like this that honestly, I'm going to assume most of you stopped paying attention about verse 9. You tried, you worked hard, but by the time we got to the third list of the cubits of the curtains, you were just kind of done. It's honestly because if you think about it, I mean, if you go camping today, you know, Josh takes the Boy Scouts out camping today. They have the hyper fancy tents. I don't know if you've even seen some of them now. You can literally just throw them and they pop up and they're all set and good to go. Maybe the the older version of those, the ones that most of us remember, would have the fancy telescoping poles. You know, they have the, the elastic that hold them tight and you just feed it through the sleeves and hook it in the end. And you can set a tent up in just a matter of moments. The problem here is that we have a tent in front of us in this chapter that's a couple of thousand years old. And the directions, they're not Ikea picture directions, they're worded directions, but we don't actually have the tent in front of us. I mean, that's effectively what we have. We have the directions on how to build a tent without having the tent. And that's honestly why so many of us struggle when we get to chapters like this is because we're such visual creatures that we stop kind of paying attention a couple of verses in because we can't wrap our mind around the geography of what's happening. And you know the beautiful part of Exodus 26? No one can. (laughs) Because God didn't give it all in there. In fact, actually, it's presumed that when Moses would get off the mountain and they would start building this, he would have already had seen the blueprints on the mountain. And these are the directions to remind him how to build it together. There are a lot of parts in this we don't have. There's a lot of parts in this. Not that God left them out. It was intentionally not given so that we could not reconstruct this today. When we got to that latter part with the frames and the tenons, I don't even know what a tenon is, most of you are saying. It's the support brace, but it's intended to be written in such a way that we can't fully wrap our minds around it. I love passages like that because even in the way they're written, it demands humility from us to say, God has given everything good and needful in His Word. 
We believe the scriptures are clear to say that every part of the Bible is good and is useful and is profitable for holy living. So when I come to Exodus 26, the problem is not Exodus. The problem is maybe I'm a little too slow to catch it right now. It begs the question, what is God teaching we're going to look at three principles that we're going to see here. Could have looked at more, could have looked at less, but three today. First to see is God is concerned with the mundane as well as the magnificent. If you think about the story of Exodus up to this part, it is, it is the story of the magnificent. Everything in this book so far is phenomenal. I mean, if you were just to turn back, just thumbing through the pages in the title, if you've got in the title of the chapters, if your, your English translation has added them in. I mean, thinking through the things that God has done, it's a miracle after miracle after miracle. Israel trying to, you know, Egypt trying to exterminate Israel, and they continue to grow and have babies. Work them into the ground so they can't make more children, and they just continue to do so. Moses' miraculous birth. The burning bush, much less the plagues. All of the things that have happened since Egypt being consumed by the sea, now at Mount Sinai, every bit of this is miraculous. It's marvelous. The big stories. In fact, actually, we even just finished what we would consider maybe the most technically dry chapter in the book yet, and it was talking about the Ark of the Covenant, where God lives. The most intellectually demanding for us so far. Every bit of the book so far has been concerned with the most miraculous and marvelous and just jaw-dropping and astounding stories yet. You may have caught that in Psalm 104 where we started the service today where it talks about the Lord using creation as his tent. It's the same verbiage here. The author of Psalm 104 is certainly riffing on this chapter as he's thinking through the categories. If the Lord isn't simply confined in a tent. He's magnificent. He's great. He's grand. He's spectacular. I love how chapter 26 does it forces us though into the details in a way that some of us just don't like to do it's a chapter of details and it's a chapter of what many of us would consider to be boring details again that's that's our problem that's not the scriptures problem the scriptures are always interesting we're the we're the weak link It shows us that the God is concerned with the mundane, the the small, the seemingly insignificant, as well as the big stuff. Verses 1 through 6, there's two sections here. Verse 1 through 14 is where we're going to look at this point. But verses 1 through 6 lay out the construction of one set of curtains. And 7 through 13 or 14 lay out the uh, second set of coverings. And the first set is a series of curtains that would be hung along the top. They would have been made out of a very fine linen uh, that would have had woven into the linen blue and purple and scarlet yarns, recognizing that blue and purple and scarlet yarns were expensive and rare. 
I mean, think about most things in this era would have been permanently dirt colored. You don't have a washing machine. You don't have bleach the way that we do today. I mean, think about if a little boy was in charge of washing his own clothes for a decade, everything would be dirt colored. And yet here inside this traveling tent, you have a a building that's made with this lovely linen and the curtains have these wonderfully colored, skillfully woven in, worked in portrait of the cherubim. I don't know exactly how they know what the cherubim look like. Obviously, the Lord showed them in some form or fashion. Maybe that's part of what the pillar of fire was. I don't know. But they're aware. And it's marvelous. And the Lord describes how these curtains are supposed to be hung. Kind of, if you think about it, if you're facing, the tabernacle would have faced to the west. So you would be facing to the left if you're thinking about it normally. And the curtains would have been run over the top kind of this way. And you would have had an entrance on this side, and it would have been long and kind of narrow. Shaped, actually, not far off from this building, shape-wise. And you would have one set of curtains that would have been the interior curtains that covered everything. That's what's described here in verses 1 through 6. And to hang these curtains, they have to be attached some way. They don't have masking tape. They don't have command strips to hang the stars along the top of the sanctuary. So they use gold loops. God's provided a little bit fancier hanging mechanism, I guess. And they use gold loops to hang them to attach them so that the entire building would be stable that way. And of course, that would be a bit of a problem. I mean, you think about having this marvelous linen, embroidered linen curtain set. And those in here that are responsible for the laundry in their home are already going a little bit panicky. I mean, I think about just my laundry from this week having all of the dust from the dirt moving out there. None of my shoes are the right color. All of them are orange. Even my navy ones are orange currently because of the red clay that the dust has just kind of manages to get places you would never expect it to get. Here is a very similar type of environment. It's dry, it's dusty. How in the world are you supposed to maintain cleanliness for a linen-embroidered curtain set? Well, God's clever. He knows. You have to put a case on it. You have to put a covering on it. So he tells us in verses 7 through 14 what those covers are supposed to be. On top of the linen... You put, verse 7, curtains of goat's hair. These curtains are, if you were to go memorize all of the details, which would be awesome if you did, they're slightly larger, and there's one extra one, so that they're able to hang all the way down, all the way to the, uh, to the dirt, and so there's room in the back so that they basically cover the entire and extra. Think about if you bought, a, if you have like a queen bed and you bought like a super giant king size uh, um, blanket that would hang all the way over and pass the bed skirt all the way to the floor. It's to provide an encasement so that the dust doesn't work its way in and so that it would help maintain the cleanliness of the linen. Now, you wouldn't see the goat's hair. Goat's hair isn't particularly fancy, but it would have been covered so that it's behind the linen, so that it would have been there and been kind of invisible. But that's not a really great material to be on the outside. So they have, again, on top of that, God prescribes another encasement on top of that. Verse 14, a tent covered with 
uh, tanned ram skins and covering of goat skins. Again, there's more vocab there than what your English is translating, but they have another encasement on the outside so that you would have tanned skins that would not absorb the dust that would be waterproof so that if it rained, the rain would rain off the top. The way that he would, if we're going to kind of put this in modern illustration, verses 1 through 6 describe the drywall and the paint color. Verses 7 through 10 describe uh, the insulation behind the drywall. And verses 11 through 14 describe the nature of the roof. He's walking them through the, the, the simple, boring, ordinary details of what a tent built by a nomad in this time would have looked like. It's simple, ordinary, regular details. It's also part of why we read these and go, well, that doesn't make sense to me. And that's probably because most of us have never built a Bedouin nomadic tent. If you had, you would go, oh, yeah, I know exactly what they're talking about. I mean, most of us probably have never constructed a yurt. You may have been in one, but you probably don't know what it is. You probably think, oh, that's a fun word to say, but I don't know what, really what it looks like. But that's exactly what God is describing. He's teaching them uh, that he's concerned with the little details as well as the big ones. And you think, well, why is that important? I mean, I get that. Okay, thank you. You've walked me through the details of the text. I still don't understand them, but I at least have a mental picture that could function. I get it. That's neat and all. Why does that matter? I think this is an incredibly important lesson for us to get because our lives are overwhelmingly filled with boring, ordinary, mundane details. I mean, honestly, if we're going to be clear, we love for the first 20 chapters of Exodus. We love the stories where the Lord answers prayer miraculously and a child that was supposed to die doesn't. Or a a pastor who's got stage four cancer all throughout his body goes in for his final scan before he dies and he has no more cancer. That happened to one of my pastors when I was a kid. Doctors are like, we got nothing. We don't even, it can't even blame a faulty equipment. There's literally no excuse for how you can have cancer everywhere and then no cancer at all. He's still pastoring today. We love for those kind of stories to happen. But the problem, the thing that we kind of wrestle with, the tension that we have is that's not normal life. It's not the everyday. Those things are spectacular for a reason. This is one of the challenges that pietism has had in historically uh, in its wrestling through what Christianity is supposed to look like. And certainly American Christianity founded on the Great Awakenings has drunk very deeply from the well of pietism and struggles with that same idea. What does Christianity look like in a mundane world? I'll put that in kind of more evangelical terminology If I'm supposed to be constantly on these mountaintop experiences, what am I supposed to do the rest of the time? How do I function in the valleys? It's always amused me as we think about the mountaintop experiences being, you know, kind of the the key pinnacle idea of what Christianity looks like. And just thinking geographically, it's just terrible thing in terms of ecology. Everything green is in the valleys. It's never on the top of the mountains. It's where all the growth is. (laughs) You want fruit, you want growth, go to the valleys, not to the top. 
God here is acknowledging, he's recognizing that life is comprised of the mundane. It's comprised of more meals eaten together as a family. It's comprised of how you drive to and from the various places that you go. It's comprised of shopping for groceries and vacuuming. Oh, vacuuming. And all of those tasks that God has called you to are the arena for your Christianity. They're the arena for your Christianity. It's the arena in which you get to display the working that God is doing in your heart. I mean, when you get to drive to or from church, that's your opportunity to display the sanctification, the the holy work that God has done in you. And for those of you that drive from Rock Hill, I feel your pain now how it is a great opportunity to display your holiness. Loading the dishwasher, cleaning toilets, going to work, adding numbers, kiddos memorizing your multiplication tables, learning how to do long division. All of these things are are areas where we get to display God's work in us. And you think, well, okay, I mean, I get it. You're beating a dead horse again. Why is this so important? Because when we begin to think in these sort of categories, suddenly everything becomes important in a different way. Everything becomes key, a, a way to display God's glory in the various tasks that we do, a way to be holy, a way to be obedient, a way to honor Him. It's certainly the language that's taken up in the New Testament. Letting your bodies be your living sacrifices to the Lord, and those sacrifices are not always on Sunday mornings because your body's not always here. Your body goes other places. It has other days of the week. It's called to labor for six days and rest for one. We're called to to bring every thought captive. We're called to do everything for the glory of God. This, This same idea of this life that God has given you, all of it, every piece of it, is an opportunity to participate in the calling that He's given to you to display the good and righteous and holy deeds that He's working in you. Again, it helps frame out a different way to approach changing diapers. It's not just an issue of self-preservation to try to get the smell to go away. It's an opportunity to display the holiness of God and the work of King Jesus and His people. Even in changing diapers. How you dress in the morning. What you eat and when you eat. God's concerned with the mundane details of life as well as the biggies, the most significant. It it changes because it brings all of creation, all of your life under this category of significant. And honestly, that's how very much the, the church in this country was founded prior to the Great Awakenings. That's how the Puritans thought about life. If you go and read their writings, it's an an attitude of everything being brought under um, the the authority of King Jesus and working uh, hard in those callings and using labor, using family, using obedience as opportunities to display God's glory. 
we drank from the well of the Great Awakenings maybe a bit too deeply and have kind of lost that idea of the simple things. How to glorify God in reading a book, even a novel. How to glorify God and again, I love thinking about how you drive. Well, the natural temptation, again, if we're going to think about this, is if we're really honest, if we're really honest, particularly the big picture thinkers in the room, but all of us, we we love loopholes, but the standard loophole that we kind of give ourselves, the excuse here, is I'll just wing it. (laughs) I mean, for the big stuff, I, I know I'm supposed to, like, you know, not murder people. I'm good on that one. But for the little stuff, for the, for the mundane things, I'll just wing it. Certainly God doesn't care how I load the dishwasher. I'll just wing it. I'll be fine. And I love how, again, if you, you take that perspective into the, uh, the creation of the tabernacle, you see how silly it is and how quickly that line of reasoning falls apart. Yeah, the big stuff's important. I'll do what God says on the big stuff, but for the little things, I'll just wing it. I'll just do what I want to do. I'll just kind of make it up as I go. (laughs) 15 and following. Really, 15 through 30. It walks us through the frames and the tenons of the tabernacle. And I'll be honest with you, these are the details that are the most specific and the details that we as English speakers today, commentators today, understand the least. All the commentaries that I read on this one all effectively said, we know generally that they're talking about, you know, beams and braces. We have no idea what this was supposed to look like. But I love how, again, it, it deals, just as we think through it, showcases that natural tendency for us to go, well, I mean, we'll, we'll handle what God says on the big things. We'll build the, the Ark of the Covenant the way he wants. We'll, you know, submit when he says, uh, you know, go through the Red Sea so it doesn't swallow you too. But with these, we'll just kind of, we'll wing it as we go. And love the thing about it, building a temple, building a tabernacle this way, building this tent, and thinking, I'll wing it on the infrastructure. You see, these frames were designed, as best we can tell, uh, again, if you're facing west, it would have been designed to be kind of wider on the bottom than on the top, and then kind of maybe pointed or flat across the ceiling. So that it would have been set up so you would have had two support braces this way, and then something running across the top. It would have been, uh, again, this way, three-sided, one across the back, two here. The front would have been open. And if you think about trying to construct a building that has one you know, completely open side, well, you would see there would be problems with shearing in terms of the support. And so it even goes to say, so you have to double the corners in the back to shore up the building so it doesn't blow over. And you're going to make frames that go up along the side so that it runs this way, and then you'll have beams in some fashion that attach them together. This would be uh, kind of in, in the modern version. This is a rough description of the blueprints of what the trusses and the joists and the, the two-by-fours would look like. This would, again, for all intents and purposes in today's language, be the conversation that Scott and Clay and David and Pete would have together when they go to talk about what the inside of the building is going to look like. 
when Jeff designed it and all the guys go to have a conversation, they're going to use verbiage and talk about it in a way that I, not a building guy, will not understand. I can't even make up the terms that they were supposed to use as to which way they're going to decide because I'm so ignorant as to what those would even be. God's describing the inside of the tabernacle. You're supposed to have uh, these frames. You have certain number along the sides. You double the corners to make it extra sure. And oh yeah, by the way, cover the entire inside bits with gold. You don't get to wing it. The details matter because God's telling you what to do, but he's also instructing you along the way. There are key little details that are hidden away in here, which are lovely, and we're an instructive pattern for God's people. The building materials get less valuable the further they get away from the Ark of the Covenant. If you were to look at the bases of the frames, they're gold in the Holy of Holies, They're silver in the most holy place and they're bronze in the front. So that when you walked into the temple itself, you would have a visual reminder, even from the outside, looking at the base of the frames, if you could see it as it was constructed, having this uh, teaching in its very construction that God is the important one and everything important is defined from him out. I love thinking about that, too, in terms of thinking about how the details matter uh, as somebody who has slept in an improperly constructed tent before. Well, I say slept. I use that loosely. I say I slept until the rain hit, and then I didn't sleep anymore. Or when the water gets in and you think, eh, I'm done. Just pack it in. I know it's one in the morning, but I'm not going back to sleep. I'm too miserable. Details matter. Because if you think about it, actually, if you kind of all to put it together in our mind's eye, in our imagination, you don't wing it because one, your perspective is so small, but two, it's because God is the only one who sees the entire big picture. He's the only one who knows exactly how everything is designed to fit together. If you kind of use your holy imagination, your sanctified imagination, what's being described here, maybe by our standards today, might not have wowed us truthfully. And I'll be honest about that. Because we are the wealthiest nation in the history of the world and the wealthiest people in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world and the buildings that we're able to build and the things that we get to see and the things that we get to do uh, would have staggered anyone in this time. But... What's being described here is a normal, ordinary tent that would have been staggeringly beautiful. I mean, if you think about walking into it, you would have had linen with these lovely blue and purple cherubim all along the sides. What kind of, you know, embroidery, what they were doing, what they would have looked like. And then all of the kind of bits holding up the temple would have been gold so that when the lampstand was lit, the entire place just sparkled on the inside. It would have been marvelous to see. But it only would have been marvelous to see if you follow the directions the right way. Because if you don't build the supports right, guess what? Tent falls over. It's not marvelous to look at. You don't build the supports the way that they're told. Well, you maybe don't put the gold on them. It doesn't look the same way. God's plan is such that it's all knit together so that it's when you obey in God's command, it showcases what he's doing. 
One last final point that's, I think, neat to think here is not just that he's concerned with all the little details. Secondly, not that I'll wing it. That doesn't cut it because God's plan is perfect. But I love how at the very end it showcases just a little glimpse. It gives this little tiny hint at how good God's plan is. Now, again, recognizing that most of us in the room are not Old Testament scholars. We do have that in the room, but most of us aren't that. Yeah, the significance of 36 and fo- or 31 and following might have been a bit lost on us. Honestly, some of us by that point were maybe thinking about our retirement planning because we thought it might be a little bit more interesting. Maybe we're just totally lost and wondering, what is he going to do with this passage? Don't worry, I felt that too earlier this week. <laughs> but it's in these details that you lose the glimpse of God's goodness, particularly if you don't, if you don't catch the details. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. This is verse 31. Fine twined linen, it shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. Interestingly, that's a different term for how the embroidery is to be done. It's a a different style of embroidery to look entirely different, more like a woven style. You shall hang it on four pillars, acacia wood overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp, bring the ark of the testimony there within the... God's already hinting that his presence is there and it's separated. But his presence is lovely and it's not there to destroy his people. This is the veil that is later going to be picked up in the temple that will be torn when Christ Jesus shows up on the cross. This is what is already being built into the very fabric of Judaism so that when Jesus shows up, they have categories to think about how good God is. You have to understand that's what so much of the Old Testament is. It's creating the categories so that when Jesus does it, it actually makes sense. So that when we say Jesus is the sacrifice, well, what is a sacrifice? Who cares? Well, we have the Old Testament to tell us. When it says that Jesus tore the veil so that we could go into God's presence, why does that matter? Well, because the entire time that God has interacted with them, he's been telling them, you can't come into my presence. It's good here, but you can't come into it. So that when Christ comes onto the scene and says things like we've already read, I and the Father are one. If you abide in me, I abide in him. Wait, I get to know God. I get to think of him as my father, because he is. The Lord is teaching even in these amazing little details, preparing us for the ministry of Christ to know that there is a mercy seat that is accomplished in King Jesus. Again, you don't think about it because we don't think about how that tabernacle would have worked, but it would have been a very large tent, again, similar size-ish to this. You would have walked in one side and men, sorry ladies, would have walked in and participated in the worship in some form or fashion. And the entire time you would have been able to know that God is removed from us. That beautiful veil right there, that beautiful curtain, the, the most lovely of them all, It marks, that's where God is, and I can't get close to him. And when Jesus shows up, you understand now why the Jews would be so angry. (laughs) Yeah, God was back there. Now he's here. And in fact, actually, he'll live within you. 
and I will accomplish that. Well, yeah, you got to kill that guy. Because he's saying completely different than what they've been thinking for thousands of years. Jesus is God and was accomplishing something that even here the Lord was preparing them to, to be challenged over to think. That we may know God. That we may fellowship with him. Not simply afar off. But here. Right now. And I end with this challenge. Most of us struggle, I would say, in our faith because we miss one of those two points. Either we think of God as always being afar off and we miss the closeness. I would suggest some of those folks, it's, your heart ends up being a little bit cold or ends up being a little bit depressed. Because we forget, it's a spiritual depression because we forget that God is so close. That we have a friend who sticks closer to, than a brother who is always with us, will never leave us nor forsake us. You need to get the other right. Some of us, on the other hand, we struggle on the other end of the spectrum, where we always think of God as close, but we don't think of him as special. For those in that category, we need to go back and think through those Old Testament categories. To forget that something marvelous, how great this God is, that to be made close to him would be just earth-shatteringly special. And to think about all of these relationships are put on display, even in the mundane things of life. And I love how that would even be taken up, both in the Old and New Testaments, that something so ordinary as food would become one of the great mechanisms whereby we know God. Something you have to do to even live with ordinary elements of grain and grape. God would use that for his holy purposes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Again, for passages like this that challenge us, that force us to think and wrestle. And we thank you that you use ordinary things like tents to challenge how we think about you, the triune God. Oh Lord, may we know you and love you even more. For Christ's sake, amen.